Now, let me just say a little something about that prayer. I believe with all of my heart, when you're sincere about praying that prayer and asking God to do something, He will not disappoint. He will do what you ask Him to do. Um, It might be a little bit of a shock to some of you, and maybe some of the others of you might go like, oh, what a relief. We're finished with our series on prayer. I didn't tell you last week was the last uh, sermon on prayer because I didn't know it until like Monday morning. And I was like, okay, we're done with that. So we're moving on, and we're starting a new series, and it is called Finding Jesus in the Book of Judges, quick poll. How many people have read the Book of Judges? Put your hand up. All right, so you know it's a real lovey-dovey, warm, fuzzy kind of a book. Makes you feel good about life all over, doesn't it? No, not really. It's kind of uh, frightening. And, you know, I think what happens a lot of times is people, they, they read through the Old Testament, maybe. Uh, I don't know how many people spend a lot of time in the Old Testament other than Psalms and Proverbs because it, it just doesn't somehow jive with our uh, fluff and stuff, kind of let's love our... Let's just love each other. Why can't we just get along? Why can't we just love each other? And so when you read through the the book of Genesis, like for instance, Genesis, um, I would like to rename some of the books in the Bible, but I know it's not um, up to me to do that. Um, So Genesis would actually be called the first book of dysfunctional families. Uh, If you think your family's messed up, read Genesis. You're going to go like, thank you, Jesus. My family's pretty normal. Um, and then you have, you know, uh, the other four books in the Pentateuch there, and, and they give you some historical stuff of what's going on, God calling people out and doing stuff. And then you come to the book of Joshua. That's where Moses is dead. He's not made it into the promised land. But his young apprentice is now taking over and going to lead Israel into the promised land. And his name is Joshua. And Joshua started his job as a leader of a nation at the age of 64 years old. So he's 64 years old when he takes on the the reins of leadership, and he lives to be 110 years old. So he has a good long reign, and he led with vigor and with the power of God through all those years. And his job was to take Israel into the promised land and then divide the promised land amongst the 12 tribes of Israel so that they could go and then conquer their area. God gave them a very specific command. He said, you are to drive out the inhabitants of the land so that you can dwell in it safely. The reason why God's driving these inhabitants out of the land, matter of fact, there were some of them, God said, put a sword to them and kill every one of them. Don't let a man, woman, or child live. Kill all the cattle, kill the camels, kill the donkeys, slaughter the chickens, kill everything with that nation because they're so evil and wicked. God wanted to annihilate that wickedness from the face of the earth. Now we're going like, man, God's really cruel. He does, he's not a loving God. Well, actually, the reason he did that is because he loved Israel so much, he knew what would happen if those countries, those people stayed in the land. If those people stayed in the land, Israel would change from worshiping God to worshiping idols. 
And so Joshua was helping to set that stage. And then Joshua dies. And in, in the beginning of Judges, it says something along this line. After Joshua died, there was a generation of people who didn't know Joshua or the mighty things that God did in Egypt to bring them out of slavery. And, and they totally forgot about God. So in other words, the, the parents of this generation didn't teach their kids the history of their nation, that God was mighty and God did great things and God demonstrated His power in all these different areas. And so there's a whole generation of people that are going like, who's God? Why should we worship God? God hasn't done anything for me. Matter of fact, I'm not even convinced God exists. Maybe we got here through like some soupy mud puddle and we just evolved out of that. And, and maybe it's a big bang thing that happened. Who knows? You know, that's what they were thinking back when the judges were starting to come along. And so what would happen is, is that you would have these people who would start to enter in and, and just disregard God. Matter of fact, God chose a certain people group to be his very own. We call them the Israelites. He called Abraham out and he said, Abraham, I'm going to set you aside. I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. The number of your relatives are going to be like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the sea. You won't be able to count them. And so God called them out. He set them aside, and that's called setting them aside, sanctifying them to be holy. And he said, be holy because I am holy. That's what he said to, to the nation of Israel. And then here's what happens over and over and over again, God has to redeem Israel despite their own self-sabotage and their effectiveness at destroying relationships. Their environments were just devastated, and there was a direct rebellion against God. So God rescue, God's rescue mission was to redeem his people. That's what he was desiring to do. He, came, he wanted to rescue them. You see, the problem didn't start when they went into the land, the promised land, and didn't drive out all the people. That's not where the problem started. The problem started back in the garden with Adam and Eve when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. When Adam and Eve said, we don't think what you're telling us is the right thing to do. We're going to do our own thing. And so what Adam and Eve did is they sinned against God. And ever since then, God has been on mission to redeem his people. He's been on mission to bring them and draw people into relationship, into right standing, justice and favor. And, and, and God has made a promise right from Genesis that he would send his mighty warrior who was going to come, the seed of a woman who was going to crush the head of the surf, serpent. And you know who that head is? That's that dirty, rotten, rotten little guy named Lucifer. And he's come to destroy us. And God sent his son who crushed his head. And so we've got this this cosmic battle that seems to be brewing all the time. But here's the great thing. This mission that God has set out to redeem the world, He has given an invitation to us through His Son. He says, I want you all to become my ambassadors of reconciliation. I want you to help me reconcile this world to myself. 
relationally because they're a mess and they don't have any idea of what's going on. And so what God does is he invites us to join him even in our failures to connect with him in the process of redeeming the brokenhearted, of bringing the sinful people to a place of holiness and righteousness, to help those who are wandering and lost to find purpose and meaning for their life. The invitation comes to us. But get this, here's the craziest part about that invitation. He doesn't need us to do his redeeming. God's plan is perfect, And he could redeem all of humanity without anybody. But what he's done is he's chosen to give us a part in what he's doing. He's given us a purpose in helping him out. And so here's what God says in this redemption plan. He places us into a culture now that does has little regard for God at all. It's kind of like days gone old when people have turned their back on God and now they're just going to do their own thing. And he's placed us in this culture and he says, now I want you to give the the greatest demonstration of my love to people. And we're going like, okay, what do you want us to do? He says, the greatest demonstration of how you spread my word to other people is by the way you love one another. Now, I'm going to put you in this culture I'm going to put you in a culture that doesn't love God. I'm going to put you in a culture that despises God. I'm going to put you in a culture that anybody who follows Christ is a loser, is an idiot, has big dreams that don't amount to anything. They're just, it's, it's all a mess. He says, but I'm going to put you right in the middle of that culture, and you're going to love people that you don't even know. You're going to love people who normally would rub you like sandpaper. You're going to love these people, and people on in that culture They're going to look at you and go like, why can you do that? How do you do that? Here's the greatest thing about God's redemption plan. It's found throughout the entire Bible. And the storyline has Jesus at the center of it. And when it comes to the historical book of Judges, It's no different than the rest of the Bible. You see, here's the thing that's really great about the whole Bible is that Jesus is at the center of the Bible all the way from Genesis to Revelation. There's this thread of Jesus Christ that runs through the whole thing and it's a scarlet thread of blood that runs through there because the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or forgiveness of sin. And so God had this plan way back at the garden, that he would start to redeem his people. And and in the Old Testament, we see the redemption of God's people time and time again. The problem is, it's not overt. It's not right in your face. It's a little more subtle, so you have to look to see what you can find out about this whole thing. And when the book of Judges is considered a part of this fabric and grand narrative of redemption history... There's this dynamic that takes place in this book because it's rather rather quite shocking because there's this suspense-filled stories of sin. And then there's the salvation. There's violent warfare going on in this book. And, and, And the whole thing points to the work and person of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, I think the reason why we don't see Jesus in the Old Testament is because we have lost touch 
with God's redemptive plan for the world. Here's, here's the, the, the greatest thing is, is that the storyline of the unfolding triumph is the kingdom of Christ throughout the entire Bible. Jesus is at the center of God's kingdom, plan, and purpose for all eternity as unfolded in the unified progressive drama of the redemption recorded in all of Scripture. Now listen, there's going to be tur- twists and turns and trials and ty- uh, triumphs. It takes 40 authors to write all these different books in the Bible, and yet the one thing that they have all running through their writing is the work and person of Jesus Christ. Part of it is the incarnate Christ. That's before he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then the rest of it that we know really well, the New Testament is the, inc- the incarnation, the pre-incarnate Christ, and then the carnation of Christ, the incarnation of Jesus where he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Actually, if you take that passage out of John chapter 1 where it says, and and he became flesh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, in that moment, what God is saying is he put his tent right in the middle of humanity's KOA campground. He's smack dab in the middle of the KOA and everybody has to walk by him in order to go get water, in order to get food, in order to use the bathroom, in order to go to recreation. Every person in humanity walks by Jesus because he made his dwelling among us. That's the redemptive story of God that he has for us. Now, when you think about the book of Judges, the traditional translation on the title of the book gives us the name Judges. But what happens with that, it doesn't help our understanding of the book's Christocentric focus. In other words, the focus on Jesus. The title of this book could actually be translated different. It could be leaders, it could be deliverers or heroes, or perhaps probably the best one would be warrior saviors. Because our our modern thought as we think about judges, we think particularly even most recently, is that there's going to be an appointment to the Supreme Court judge. We've got another one that's going to be appointed by the president. And, and what happens in our modern view is when we think of a judge, we think of a guy in this black robe who sits in this ivory palace kind of place where uh, all he does is listen to people and, and does cases and, and all the rest of that. That's not the judge that we have found here in the Bible. These guys that we're talking about here, they're charismatic military leaders raised up as an expression of God's mercy to deliver a stiff-necked, rebellious people. The book of Judges describes the task of a judge this way, found in the second chapter of Judges. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Who saved them. They're a type of savior. Because they needed saving. 
They couldn't get out of it themselves. Matter of fact, if you continue on in Judges chapter 2, verses 18 19, it says this, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was the, with the, the, Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hands of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So you see, there's this cyclical thing that's going on with Israel at this time. Because what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to drive these nations that were idol-worshiping nations out of the out of the country of Israel, the promised land that God had given to them, and because they failed to do it, now God says, listen, you disobeyed me and didn't do what I told you to do. Now you're going to have to suffer the consequences of that sinful behavior. These guys are now going to come back around, and they are going to cause you problem after problem after problem because I want you to love me only, but you don't love me only. You've got other things going on. So the Lord has to provide these warrior saviors who are going to fight for an undeserving people who could not save themselves. Rather than being titled the book of Judges, it could be fittingly titled the book of of saviors. These warrior saviors function over a period of 300 years from the death of Joshua to the rise of the monarchy in Israel. They would rise up during a period of rebellion, of apostasy in Israel, and when the people did evil in the sights, in the eyesight of the Lord, that's what would happen. There's this thing going on. Judges 3 says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's what they did that was evil. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. The first step in idol worship is forgetting who God is. It doesn't take much to forget who God is. All it takes is for us to take our eyes off of Jesus and we start to look at the other things around us. And, and you know, we've talked about this before. Because as soon as you take your eyes off of God, as soon as you remove yourself from focusing on Jesus, as soon as God becomes less important than something else, there's this rebellion that arouses God's anger. And he will chastise them by being, allowing, he chastised in the book of Judges, he chastised them by being, allowing them to be oppressed at the hands of their foreign invaders. And the people eventually would cry out to the Lord, who would hear their cries and provide for them a warrior savior to deliver them from the hands of their, their enemies. The pervasiveness of the war heroism of the warrior saviors God provided to deliver this undeserving people. The very framework of the book of Judges mirrors the framework of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were to go, and by the way, let me recommend this for you over the next eight or nine weeks, to take the book of Judges and start reading in the book of Judges. 
If you read the book of Judges, you're going to become familiar with some of these guys. Like one of my all-time favorite judges, Shamgar. He's a dude, man. Here's the crazy thing about Shamgar. He is a judge, but there's not a whole lot of ink spilled about his name. But yet, he made it in the Bible. Shamgar. Find out who Shamgar is. Or Ehud. Here's one that you probably already know. A judge, Samson. You know Samson, right? Yeah. What was Samson's problem? He needed to go through the Conquer series and Pure Desire, which we have here for men. He was a sex addict. And he needed big help from Jesus in a big way. And he ignored his issues. But yet God used him. So you have these these things going on in the the very framework of this. And it all mirrors the gospel of Jesus because we have to to face the same things because Paul kind of told us who we are in in Romans chapter 3. He said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here it comes back to redemption. God's still on his plan of redeeming humanity. He's still on his plan of bringing every man, woman, and child into relationship with himself through Jesus Christ. And and it's the first promise of the gospel, and it was declared, like I said earlier, in Genesis chapter 3, where the prophecy was made that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And the enemy. And the mortal combat was engaged. So here's one of the the problems you'll find when you start to read through the book of Judges. You have a judge that God raises up out from among the people. And he appoints them to go and rescue, bring salvation to the people. But the very people who are bringing salvation to the nation are in themselves flawed human beings. They're sinful guys. They're sinful gals. They do things that would make your hair curl. You're going to look at some of this stuff and you're going to go like, really? you got to be kidding me. Like, God's using that guy? Well, the good news is if God used that guy, He's going to use you. Because I can tell you right now, I don't think very many of you have some of the problems that they had. It might be close. It might look a little bit different. But the whole thing is that they have these, God's using these, these people who are sin-filled people and they've got sinful actions and flawed reasoning. But what it does is it reminds us that God is given these warrior saviors to us as an echo or just a shadow of the real deal, the incarnation of the warrior savior king who is the mighty horn of salvation raised up from us in whom there is no sin. And that prophecy was made in Luke chapter 1 by uh, Zechariah who was filled with the Holy Spirit and he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people, and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. 
The horn of salvation that he raised out of David's lineage? Jesus Christ. And he is the ultimate Savior. He's the ultimate warrior, Savior, King that God sent for us to know. So if you take now and you go back to the, bat, the pattern of behavior that Israel demonstrate, here is something we can probably all re- relate to in a variety of ways. The people would rebel against God. Judgment would come by foreign oppression. God would raise up a deliverer or a judge, and the people would repent, turning back to God. And when the people fell back into sin, the cycle started all over again. And if you look up this phrase every time, something went awry with the nation of Israel, there was this phrase right before the author of this historical book wrote it. Here's what he said. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. The judge comes, he, he, he or she will rescue and save them, and as long as the judge is alive, it seems like Israel is going to follow God. But as soon as the judge dies, it's like they bury him, and the next day, they're off doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what happens is, as believers, we know what it is to repent and then be restored, to to repeat sinful behaviors, regretting our decisions. We can all relate to learning the truths of God by His Word. And he'll, He'll do it in one of two ways. He'll either do it by instruction or he will do it by correction. Don't be fooled if you don't think God brings correction to your life. In Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us that God only disciplines those whom he loves. So if you don't know the discipline of the Lord at some time or another in your life, I don't think you're perfect. I think there might be something askew maybe with your relationship with God. And you might want to take a look at it and go like, okay, I, okay. you know what? Listen, I, I can't tell you how many times Jesus took me to the woodshed and whipped my fanny because I was walking in sin. And he told me time, time, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. I did it. And he says, okay, now, you, now like a good parent, he disciplines us. But he also brings it through instruction. You know, you can learn. The, when God says, don't commit adultery, we go like, okay, that's probably really sound advice. I probably shouldn't covet somebody else's wife for a couple of reasons. Number one, first and foremost, it's a sin, sin against God. God doesn't want me to, to look and, and have covetous eyes after somebody else's wife. Number two, the husband of that wife just might come and bring the Lord's discipline to my life and beat me within an inch of my life. Two good reasons not to get involved with another man's wife. Okay, when my kids were growing up, I told them there are two things you never do. You never mess with another man's woman and you never, ever, ever mess with another man's food. And it's not necessarily in that order either. You might want to take the food because that's dangerous ground, you know? The the main issue that Israel had, and you'll you'll see this a couple of times throughout 
the book of Judges, is it's, it's really succinctly nailed as to what the main problem was. In Judges 17, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You know what the, the philosophy of that is? Today, if it feels good, do it. Don't let somebody dictate their morals to your life. Who nobody, can, nobody has the right to hold you accountable to anything. I mean, sure, you can't murder somebody. That's, that's really, that's against human, human laws. And there's a lot of different things. But listen, as far as it goes, if you want to do it and you're not hurting anybody else, don't you worry about it. You do whatever you want to do. In other words, everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And that leads us to places where God's saying, I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to be involved with those things. Because what happens is, is that as soon as you start to do what's right in your own eyes, you neglect who God is. You forget about God. And things go south from there because all of a sudden we're starting to go places where God says don't go. Let me just give you a few. There's a new age pantheism. People start to worship <laughs> the craziest things, the stupidest things. And I'm going to use the word stupid because some of the stuff, I mean, how, how brilliant is it to get something that's it's not even made of real gold anymore. A little Buddha guy and put him in your home and, and go like, yeah, it's no big deal. I kind of like it. I mean, it kind of, you know, makes me feel more inclusive. I'm going to tell you right now, there are people who include all kinds of stuff from different cultures that is part of their worship of false gods and they bring it into their home unaware of the consequences and the spirits that attach to it. I'm just going to say this real quick, and if I've, if I've stepped on your toes by saying this, I'm really sorry because I didn't mean to step on your toes. I meant to kick you right in the shin because you might need to be woken up. But if you have a dream catcher from Native Americans hanging anywhere in your house, take that thing out to your burn barrel and burn it today because that thing is an idol and there has been worship that's gone into that thing before you got it. It's packing evil spirits with it. And I am not kidding you one little bit. So, um, let me kind of walk you through a few things here about Israel and why they needed judges to come along. First of all, we've already hit this up, but it's just kind of to help you remember this. They forgot what the Lord had done. Guess what? We can do that easily as well. We can forget what God has done in our lives. And I'm going to say if we took the time this morning and we gave everybody and we made you, it was mandatory, and if you didn't do it, then you had to give double to the offering. Make you stand up over there, start right there, and we'd work our way all the way across from the front to the back, and you would stand up and you'd have to give testimony as to the great one great thing that God did in your life 
Every single person in here could stand up and said, this is the great thing that God did in my life. And I'm going to tell you, if you do not remember those things, it will come back and become a problem later in your life. Because as soon as you forget what God did for you, then you forget about God. You know, it was after Joshua died, there came a generation of people who, who didn't know Joshua or the things that God did for them. And it's at that point in, in Israel's history when Joshua's about ready to take over and he stood next to Moses as a great hero and he gave them, here's the message of what you have to do as you step into this. And you need to remember these things that God has done for you. And they didn't remember and they forgot them and they didn't worship God. And there's an old saying that, that goes something like this. People who don't study or forget history are doomed to repeat it. You've got your own history with God. You need to study it and you need to remember it. The second thing is that they forsook what the Lord said. It goes something like this. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Here's the problem. When, when we forsake what God has said for us to do, we're going to start doing things we thought we would never do. And we're a heartbeat away from stepping into sin. Had they remembered Joshua, they would have known his farewell speech. And it would have been the, the leaders of Israel would have followed through on that farewell speech and Joshua's emphasized his covenant with God made with Israel and the responsibility of the leaders to teach it and the people to obey it. When we forget the word of God, we are in danger of forsaking God of the word. This explains how Israel could so easily be go to the vile and the vicious worship of Baal. It's one thing to read God's word. It's quite another thing to live it and apply it and to keep it in your hearts and to do what God says to you. The, the third thing is they forfeited what God had promised because they re, re, nagged on their end of the deal with God. God brought punishment to them. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against, against them and defeat them as a sworn to them. And they were in great distress. This is the theme that keeps going over and over and over. So what I want to do is, you know, there's these great judges. There's uh, Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah and Japheth and, and Samson, all these guys. But there's one that I want to just kind of point out, and we're going to come back and talk about him later in this series. And his name is Gideon. And you find his story in Judges 6. And so I'm just going to hit up a few things about this that apply to our lives. It's, now, listen, here's what's going on. All the nations around Israel are coming in, and what would happen is Israel would go out to their farmland, and they'd plant all of these crops. They'd have grapes, and they'd have wine. They would have uh, the vineyards. They'd have the fruit trees. They'd have the wheat fields. They'd have everything. They'd have their little chicken and turkey farm set up. 
and all this stuff. And then it, the Bible tells us that all these other nations, right when it was time for harvesting all this stuff, they would come in like locusts and they would rape the country of all the produce it had and it left Israel with nothing. They were literally going to be starving to death because these nations would come in and absolutely plunder all of the harvest off of the vine. And Israel had nothing. And so now we find Gideon. He's hiding out, <laughs> he's hiding out in the wine press because he's got some wheat he's going to thrash so that he has the grain to make bread for his family. That's the background. So Judges 6.11, Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrath, uh, which belonged to Joash, the Abazite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So he's hiding. He's hiding. And, and he's doing all this stuff because he doesn't want anything to come. Now, when it says the angel of the Lord, that's a really interesting phrase because I really want you to understand this. When it talks about the angel of the Lord, that is a cue for us to pay attention because that is the pre-incarnate Jesus. Jesus shows up as the angel of the Lord's army. He shows up to Gideon and he's sitting there watching him do this stuff. And then he says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said this to Gideon. This is great. I love it. Because it says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, hiding out in a wine press. Can you imagine Gideon's face? He's like, who? Me? Mighty man of valor? I'm hiding, dude, because I don't want to die. You know what? God didn't call him that because that's who he was. God called him that because that's who he was going to become. And you know what? God has a name for you, and he calls you that name, not necessarily because that's who you are, but he calls you that name because that's who you will become. You walk with Jesus. You obey the commandments of Jesus. You live in righteousness with Jesus. You do the things that God calls you to do. And you will become a mighty man, mighty woman of valor for the kingdom of God. You may not feel like it right now. You may feel like, I don't know enough. I don't, how can I even do anything? I just like feel so inadequate. Are you hiding in a wine vat? You're not. You're out there in the middle of your culture. And, and look what he says. Look what he says to Gideon after that. And the Lord, Jesus, turned to him and said, here's what he said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. The call for Gideon was to go and rescue a people. The mighty man of valor who's hanging out, hiding, because he's afraid. God changed his attitude. He changed his vision. He changed his heart. He, he, he stepped in and did something that only God could do. 
And when God gave the call to us, to each and every one of us, Jesus extended that call. The Lord extended that call to us when he said, go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them everything I've commanded you. It's the same imperative that he gives here. He says, go in the in this might of yours and save Israel. He's telling us to go and to pick up the mission that he's given to us. Now listen, here it is. God's peace comes through personal contact with God. God's peace is not a substitute. It is not a concept. It is not even a belief. God's peace comes through nothing less than his transforming presence, his manifest presence in your life. And whenever and wherever God comes... Everything is transformed. So the angel of the Lord declares, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. If there's anything that Gideon was not at that moment, he was not a valiant warrior. Gideon probably looked around and was thinking that he was speaking to somebody else. So when God calls you, don't look around. Say, here I am, Lord. What do you want me to do? It's always the same whether it's prideful Joseph with his coat of many colors or the tempestuous Peter who always opened his mouth and stuck his foot in it, the presence of the Lord always brings transformation. The Lord was saying to Gideon, I know what you are better than you know yourself, but but I'm more concerned with what you will become than what you are now. I am with you, Gideon, and that makes all the difference in the world. Other people look at us and may only see our flaws. And we all have plenty of those. But God looks at us and he sees our possibilities. God's peace comes when we acknowledge his presence. When we trust his power to transform our potential into reality. God makes the same declaration to us this morning. The Lord is with you, O mighty man, woman of valor. And he makes that call to each of us because he wants us to be on mission with him. We have something the judges didn't have. We have the Holy Spirit who is with us and in us. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what God is calling us to do. And that what, that's what makes us mighty. Therefore, we are called to be on mission with God. And get this, mission begins and ends with God. And the motivation for mission is the intimate relationship with God. But the outcome of that relationship is service. This mission doesn't stop and start with us. We're not the initiators. We're not necessary. But we are a big part of the story. And as we lean into discerning where the mission of God is active, we will get the privilege of participating with what the Spirit is doing there. By drawing close to Jesus... And then having him send us into the world to live and be with him in the spaces that he is changing and renewing. So, stepping into the lives of others to join God in bringing justice, love, truth, and reconciliation in all of itself is wonderful. But it is incredibly taxing. It's hard work. It's not easy. And that's why we oftentimes fall short, and crawl back into the wine press to hide. Because we don't know what to do. And yet, standing at the door for us is the invitation from Jesus. It's an invitation. 
for us to step up and do what he's calling us to do. And here's what it sounds like. He, here's the, get the words, the first three words. Come to me. That's Jesus. He's calling us. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you want to be on mission? Two things. If you want to be on mission, say yes to Jesus. And when you're on mission, listen to the invitation for rest because he will empower and he will give rest. That's God called us. Jesus demonstrated it to Gideon and now he's demonstrating it to us. Oh, mighty men and women of valor, go because the Lord your God is with you. Amen? Father, we thank you that you have called each of us to step into mission. You have called each of us to participate in the redemptive process. You have called us like you called Gideon, like you called Chamgar, like you called Ehud, like you called Deborah and Samson. Even in all of our flaws, even in our sinful behavior and thought patterns, you call us and empower us. Give us the courage to trust you as you lead us to do what you have wanted us to do from the moment we said yes to you, that we would fulfill the purposes of God in bringing reconciliation to a world that is in desperate need of a Savior. Like Israel was in need of a Savior in Judges, we are in need of a Savior today. Thank you that you will empower us, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.